Gospel of Matthew, we're in the 24th chapter. We're preaching sequential sermons through the Gospel of Matthew. And we are at verse 15 this morning. Our text will be verses 15 through 22. Matthew 24, verses 15 through 22. When you have that, uh, look up and I'll commence our reading for the most part. Okay. The Word of God. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not return to take his cloak. Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Thus far, reading God's holy and infallible and inerrant word. All flesh is as grass, its beauty is as the flower of the field. The grass withers, its flower fades. But the word of our God endures forever. And this is the word that was just read. By God's help, it will be preached. Please be seated. When people and nations and cities come under extreme trouble, extreme danger, <clears throat> the people are alerted to the danger and they seek refuge and they seek refuge in the most dependable, the strongest, the most stable and known defense that they have in hand. There's no time for experimentation. There's no time for cute ideas, caucuses. Uh, it's time to flee. It's time to run. In our passage, our Lord is saying that Jerusalem will be under siege. And to all apparent uh, eyes, uh, the eyes of the world looking on, it is the Romans that are seizing and uh, besieging Jerusalem with mighty armies, with their standards, with their captains, the mightiest army in the world, the best organized army in the world, the most experienced army in the world. Their troops were already nested and comfortably living within Jerusalem. They knew the city inside and out. They had mapped it. They were already within the walls. It was not a matter of siege works. It was not a matter of much strategies. Everything was mapped out. That was to the eye of the onlooker, if he was just watching in history. What was really going on here is what Jesus has been warning all along, that the people of God had lapsed. They were the people of God. They were covenant of grace. God had given them promises and ordinances. They've given him the prophets. They've, many, many had believed. Many, many of the elect throughout all the ages had believed, but now the place had become 
a den of robbers. It had become a fruitless vineyard, a dangerous, homicidal city where the king, the heir of all things, was not welcome, but that he would be thrown out, he would be marginalized, he would be condemned, killed. And so they had broken covenant because they had let go of the head. Now, not every person, of course, not every, not every Jew living in them. Many, many had gone to John the Baptist in the Jordan and had found repentance and looked to that lamb, looked to the lamb of God. That is the salvation of the world, much more their own their own Savior, the blood of the Lamb that avails for the forgiveness of sins. They looked to Jesus. All right. But the leaders had forsaken, repudiated, rejected the salvation. And it had come to the point now where there was just no, no remedy. And the Lord would break his staff of favor. And he would, he would now unleash Woe unto this city. The passage here in 24, in Matthew 24, has to do with really the end of the age. And I, I, I would like to explain how this teaching here about fleeing Jerusalem and heading to the hills and leaving, and leaving all and fleeing and making haste, how, what that has to do with the end of the world. And just to make things short for our visitors who haven't been here for previous sermons, let me just say that uh, the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the old covenant was, was as analogous to the end of the world. The temple itself represented the cosmos. I won't get into that, that detail, uh, but it's all by typology, not necessary, not even by, by similitude, but by typology set by God as an example, not only to the Jew, but to all the world, that this is what happens when you hear and receive the blessings of God who dwells with you in his temple, with his people. When you receive him, love him, believe him, obey his commandments, you have blessing. When you turn away from God who is with you, who is in your midst, who has uh, given you his emblems of sacraments and his holy presence, and you begin not to listen to him when you turn your head and your heart's away from him, then this is what happens. He breaks covenant and then all ensuing misery. We're talking about the end of the age, and the question that the disciples had asked early here in this, in this place of, of Jesus is, when will these ends, when will the end uh, take place? When will these things happen, come about? And what will, what will be the sign of your appearing? Now, Jesus is offering his fifth discourse here, uh, but it's, it's private uh, to his disciples. This is not to the multitude. Uh, this is, uh, as it were, a, 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 a more uh, near teaching because the benefits of being a disciple is not only that you get to hear the Lord Jesus, but you get to ask questions of the Lord Jesus. And the church is about not, mere, not merely a man speaking to you. Uh, the church is about making disciples and you ask questions and there's dialogue. When will these things come about, ask the disciples? Great question. And what will be the sign of your appearing? Now, the way I take this, and my best 
my best approach to this passage is, is, is that this is certainly speaking about the days of the disciples leading up to the destruction of the temple, the sacking of Jerusalem, uh, a, most, a very most momentous historical uh, fact that you can study in history, uh, copious notes to study on that. And, but it has implications and applications today simply because by the typology of the temple and by the typology of Israel as God's elect, now that teaching can still uh, be of great service and great help and great instruction to us about what to do and what not to do when the hammer comes down, when God disciplines the nations, when he visits with all manner of disturbance, which he has done since the beginning of the world and which he will continue to do. And especially when he disciplines his church, which is the household of God, for judgment first begins in the household of God. And this is what's going on here. Jerusalem, Judea, the people of God are the household of God, were the household of God. And God, by his favor, disciplines and addresses their sins first, that they might repent, that they might see the light and turn and be healed the proposition here this morning is that Christ's prophecy concerning God's wrathful destruction of Jerusalem contains specific directions for the safety of his disciples and for the elect remnant of those believers of the Jews, of the people. And that's the teaching. Three points. First point, every vestige, every token, every remaining emblem of the Old Covenant that is Old Covenant peculiar to the Jews will be suddenly and quickly destroyed in Jerusalem. When the end comes to Jerusalem it, ends, it, it comes exceedingly quickly. Jerusalem's ancient walls <clears throat> the fortress city of the Jebusites standing one of the last strongholds to be taken by David and his mighty men took years. This will be coming down in hours. Jerusalem's ancient walls will be breached, and they will be breached by the profane armies of a secular and defiling people. No time taken for lengthy siege works, no, none needed. The city is destined for destruction. Babylon took time, Tyre and Sidon took time. These are mighty, mighty cities, fortress cities. Jerusalem is a fortress city. It will not take time at all. And then Jesus mentions the abomination of desolation. You can read that. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time going back. Daniel 9 and verse 29. Basically, he tells you all that is needed to to be known here is that uh, the defiling presence of a pagan at the very heart, at the very throne of God in the temple is desecration and it's desolation. That was predicted by Daniel. And uh, it is uh, a, 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 an occasion of lament because God's temple is holy and all that belongs to God 
It must be regarded as holy. If God, God couldn't possibly cease to be holy. But when we disregard what is holy, that we might be ashamed of ourselves, sometimes God shows us that there, may, uh, there is other further unholiness that can come your way to like, make you wake up and see that this is indeed a disgusting thing for pagans to treat holy objects and holy emblems of God's love as curiosities and trophies and museum pieces. You can visit London, you can see a lot of this stuff here, you know? Abomination of desolation from Daniel's prophecy. It said basically that the temple and its environs, but the most sacred place of the temple would be desolated, desecrated. Now, the funny thing about, uh, about this is that it appears uh, in the vernacular, you'll see many commentaries, you'll see uh, this phrase, uh, fulfillment of scripture, yes, but a double fulfillment. Let me explain what's going on here. It appears that Antiochus, uh, Epiphanes, who uh, was in this region from 175 to 164 BC, he himself desolated and desecrated Jerusalem and the temple. And you would think, well, that, uh, there goes that, and so we have the fulfillment. Uh, but it, it, surely, it surely seems to stand that Titus and his Roman armies did the same thing in 70 AD. Uh, but you figure, well, how could that be? Because, I mean, prophecy, double fulfillment, if, if, if you allow for double fulfillment, you might allow for triple fulfillment, quadruple fulfillment. What does this mean? Well, this is a kind of a special case. And the best, way I can, I can, the best thing I can do here is say this, that double fulfillments are no problem if they involve symbols such as Jerusalem and the temple. Uh, symbols can be profaned very easily. You can profane the Lord's Supper here. You can blaspheme repeatedly against symbols, and that may be a fulfillment of this prophecy that the Lord's name is profaned among the nations. But just because you have profaned it last week doesn't mean you won't profane again this week. And so there's no problem here, <clears throat> to, my, to my understanding. It's just like with Habakkuk. <clears throat> the prophecy of Habakkuk, uh, he, uh, Habakkuk was struck by the fact that Jehovah <clears throat> would send people far worse than the Jews, who were very bad, and they have been given to idolatry. But these fellows here... Uh, from Babylon were far worse idolaters, and he's sending <clears throat> pagans, uncircumcised, no covenant, enemies of God, to discipline and punish. Discipline the true sons, the elect, punish and wrathfully punish those that are never have come to rest in Jehovah's promises. But it's just like Habakkuk and the Babylonians, the ungodly will judge God's lapsed covenant people. And when this happens, Jesus is saying, <clears throat> I've given you some instruction. Just like Jehovah gave instruction to Habakkuk in his day, that the righteous would live by faith. They are to wait on God. <clears throat> and even though the vineyard would not bloom, <clears throat> even though every blossom, every almond blossom would fade, yet the Lord will triumph. And he's made his feet like hind's feet in the high places. 
The Lord, even in discipline, even in judgment, remembers mercy. And he's given us this instruction by way of mercy because there will be more history to God's unfolding redemption than the conclusion of matters in Jerusalem and the temple. The ungodly will judge God's lapsed covenant people. And when this happens, don't despair. Remember this prophecy. Trust the word of God. Trust Christ, who is the prophet, and you will do well. And of course, the main temptation here is that Christians who have had the benefit of Jesus' ministry for the last three years will be tempted <clears throat> to give up on their Messiah. Uh, he didn't come to reign. He hasn't. I don't see the fulfillment of this of the of the kingdom promises. How he came into Jerusalem mounted on a, a white foal of a donkey, yeah, and he was acclaimed by his in, infants. And it seems surely to, it seemed to be a fulfillment of Psalm eight and other places, Psalm one eighteen. But less Christians who have come to know the doctrine that led Christ's lips, if they be tempted to return to those emblems of the legal administration of the covenant of grace, that is to say to the Jewish system, now being broken up, now being absolutely abrogated, that is to say removed, and now continuing in its fulfillment with Christ, lest they be tempted to return all the emblems of these, these vestiges, these tokens of the old covenant and the peace of God with his covenant people, uh, the sons of Abraham, will be raised to the ground. And the only hope of security for you <clears throat> is not to trust these buildings with their precious stones, is not to trust the temple, uh, uh, the temple uh, walls and the, and, and the fortress city. It is to trust the word of God, and he will be to you a strong tower and a, a sure hope of security. Every vestige then of the old covenant will quickly be destroyed once the desolation of abomination is, becomes evident. Point two, every effort must be made quickly to flee the wrath of God in Jerusalem. The wrath of God spiritually is very selective between the elect and the non-elect. But in terms of his temporary or temporal judgments in the world, if you are caught in a Roman bath with an arch heretic, you might just wonder if perhaps you should leave the Roman bath as, uh, as our good apostle friend did because of God's wrath might break out. Yeah. God's wrath is sometimes very parochial. He's very localized, and you better not be in that locality. Make every effort then to quickly flee the wrath of God in Jerusalem, he's telling his, Jesus is telling his disciples. The inhabitants into, of Jerusalem and Judea must flee at the approach of Rome. And uh, at least some tradition writings and history speaks of a Christian, uh, massive Christian exodus and exile to a place called Perea Pella. There they gathered. There had to have been some place to receive these people. Anyone left inside Jerusalem, uh, you better be ready. If you're on the housetop, the scripture here says that the, 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 those in Judea to flee to the mountains, one who is on the housetop, not go down to what is in his house. There's no time 
even for uh, preparation. I was once in a court in a court case. And I was watching a man tried for uh, it was a traffic violation, but it happened to be multiple traffic violations, and the judge had just about run out of clemency. And when the judgment came, he told the bailiff, 90 days, no time to go back to the car and, and get your comb, no time to go home, get your favorite toothbrush, you're gone. Anyone left inside Jerusalem on the housetop? Well, <clears throat> it may be too late. Prepare yourselves for the worst. The worst would be imminent death. Many, 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 millions, maybe a million, I, I know the, the bottom number <clears throat> to be one million were executed <clears throat> by uh, the soldiery of Rome. It would be too late to do much of anything. Don't even try it. It's that quick. Jesus is emphasizing the quickness and the readiness, the readiness that needs to be a feature of every disciple. And so I have to ask you by way of application, are you ready at all times for the coming of the Lord? Now, this doesn't have to be his global coming when he's coming as lightning east, east to west in the sky. This has, this has to do with his visiting him, visiting you, and uh, his angel tapping you gently on the shoulder and saying, come with me. You've just died. Are you ready for death? Do you know how to arrange your house? I'm not speaking about your will. I'm not in legal services. I'm not fit to, to counsel you financially. But your house, your body, your temple, are you ready? Do you know that you are justified? Do you know that you are accepted in the beloved? Do you know that Christ's righteousness avails for you by faith? And that is to say, not, not by the merit of your faith, but, but by the merit of Christ and trusting and resting in his and his excellent righteousness, and his obedience, and especially his obedience in going to the cross and dying for your sins. Do you, know, do you know that Christ died for you, for your sins? Do you know that he's ascended, and that he's your Lord, and he's taking your name upon the lips, uh, uh, that high priest is taking your name and interceding? That's how we prepare. That's how we have to be ready and stand firm, uh, because the end when it comes, comes quickly. And that does have application to today as well. Anyone outside of Jerusalem is in the field, drop, drop your sickle, drop your hoe, leave your, leave your mule. It's time to fly. Drop everything and fly. To return home is to be like looking back as Lot's wife pillar of salt. You have to be this ready. You have to be going forward and not backwards. Jerusalem represents an order that is now gone. Every vestige will be raised, except for one wall. There will be one wall and I think two or three towers that remain just as a testimony that there once lived a people here, the Jebusites, then David, and then the, etc. Just for the for the sake of archaeology and the witness to the nations that this is not a fable, this is historical, verifiable fact. To return home is to return to a burning house and a covenant that is dissolved, the favor of that covenant with, with uh, the Jews entered in by circumcision and supported by so many ordinances 
under that legal administration that is gone. One must save your own soul even at the cost of losing all things. Does that sound familiar? Well, of course. Jesus says, if, if you love your life, you'll lose it. If you lose your life for his sake, you'll find it. He says, take my cross. Follow me. If you love the, if you love the world, you, you do not love God. You, that is to say, it's not, it's, not, it's not saying you can't go to a museum and see uh, fine art and, and rejoice in, in good music. That's not what it's saying. It's, it's, but by comparison, your love for God and your love for his kingdom has to be far more ordinate than your love for anything that remains behind. Because this existence, the current heavens and the earth, belong to the old order of things. And they will be regenerated. They will be refreshed at the coming of the Lord. All these things are useless. They're shakable. And as long as you cling to the shakable things, you yourself will be shaken. I, I don't know. You may, I'm not saying that you're going to be damned. But man, you, that's a wild ride to be shaken by the Lord as he's moving mountains. Why don't you just let go of those mountains? And follow the Lord in peace. Take up your cross daily. Think often of heaven. And it will not seem such a burden to give up all things. It will not seem like such a foreign country. I don't mean Perea Pella. I mean, I mean heaven. Now the flight here, Jesus says, you better pray. And he doesn't know. He's the son of man. He doesn't know all things regarding the end time, apparently. But Jesus says to his disciples, you, you're, the flight here will be terribly difficult for pregnant women and nursing mothers. And he announces that even as a woe. He says, woe, alas. I don't like that translation. Why did they say alas in verse 19? Woe for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants and those days. The connotation here is that they will face imminent danger and, of course, get wrapped up, if not personally in the, and eternally in the wrath of God. Temporally, they're all wrapped up in the misery and in the wrath of that city. Remember Lot's wife. In calamity, you need to understand, my friends, and this is for today. When God, the wrath is God's strange work. In all the years of dealing with his people, very few years by count were filled with God's anger towards his people. But he did have those years. There's no discounting that. You've got to be mad to say, well, he's usually not like that. I'm going to. I'm banking on, on his benevolence. Yeah, of course, we're all banking on his benevolence. But God is God. And in calamity, great blessings, great privileges, great real estate holdings, great vineyards, great, great treasure, all of these become heavier burdens. Sad, one of the greatest sadnesses you could ever have is, is to have lived for 50 years, a, house, a, a life of privilege, a, house, a life of comfort and peace, and then all that be taken away and you, you're, you're reduced to digging ditches in the hot sun with barely enough water. And this is what happens, my friends, 
when people and nations come under discipline and are, are displaced, and that by God's design. In calamity, great blessings and privileges become heavier burdens. And that's why we say in Scripture, woe to the rich. It's not that being rich is calamitous. It says that in this world that is all turbulence and flux, you, we are very prone to latch to things that give us comfort. But those things are not God. The temple brought great comfort, and even by God's ordinance. But that temple was not God. His ordinances, they're not God. Communion, the Lord's Supper, is not God. Preaching is not God. The Westminster Confession, I love it. All it's in the catechisms brings me great comfort and happiness. It's not God. What are the rich? And blessings to the poor who know they are helpless because they don't have resources. Because they have to throw themselves like, like forlorn widows at the feet of Jesus. Because they know that if God is not with them, then nothing else will comfort. But they also know that if, since God is with them, then they have all they need. The Lord of hosts is with us, and the God of Jacob is our stronghold. So flight will be terribly difficult, also in unseasonable times. So we are to pray. Uh, this is, I find this very interesting, isn't it? That these things are locked in to happen by God's decree, and yet we are commanded to pray. Of course, our prayers are also locked in by God's decree. And if anyone that is, uh, supposes himself to be a Calvinist is not given to much prayer, as not a true Calvinist, not, not by any stretch of the means. We are to be people of prayer because somehow that prayer is also be ordained by God. It is a means of grace. Flight by the cold of winter, pray that it not be so. Pray that it not be on a Sabbath. What could happen on a Sabbath? Well, two things, I think. You know, there's plenty of legalistic Jews that might stop your flight. They may not understand. They may not understand that now this is not any mere national emergency. This is the end of the line. They think they're going to continue with their, with their form of government, their stolen priesthood by the Sadducees. The ridiculous traditions heaped on and diluting the strength of God's word by the Pharisees. Their hatred of true religion. The legalistic Jews may try to stop your flight from Jerusalem. They'll arrest you even as you're fleeing. Look, but here's the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Now we're safe. God is with us. And you know how he's always defended us in the past. You think, remember Hezekiah? From the walls of Jerusalem? Remember? 185,000 dead Assyrians? Come on. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Those leaders do not understand. The legalistic Jews may try to stop you, and you may be taken, and you may be killed. So you pray that that not happen to you. Because the Old Testament, the Old Covenant is now finished. And that Sabbath of spiritual rest that you had so loved, that Sabbath that was not a burden to you, but it was a, a delight to you because it spoke of 
of peace with God and tranquility and safety. The Sabbath is a fortress for the spiritual soul. That Sabbath of rest is denied you. The old is gone and you are in the hands of pagans. And God's wrath is hottest against those who hear the gospel and reject it. If you are within the hearing of the gospel, with all of his blessings, announcing peace to those who believe, announcing reconciliation with God, friendship with God, no condemnation, and you do not receive those with rejoicing, you, hear, you come to church week by week, and you are not at all satisfied, nor are you happy that you leave disgruntled, the Lord having given himself to you repeatedly in ordinances and in sermons. God's wrath is hottest against those who hear the gospel and reject it. Gospel is a law of sorts. It gives, me, it gives you much more reason than, than the Ten Commandments to rejoice, even though you should be rejoicing in God's truth and the Ten Commandments. But the gospel gives you much more reason to rejoice. And if you can't rejoice in that, my friends, that you are, you are far worse than the day that you've never heard the gospel at all. You need to repent. You need to make good. Today is the day of salvation. Flee to Christ. God's wrath is often localized as it is here in A.D. 70 against the Jews, but especially against idolatry and especially against, let me just say this, the first table of the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments, which are easily broken by us because God forbears. He's so patient. He doesn't lash out. Judgment is his, his strange work. And so we take his patience as, as acceptance of our ways because we have a form of faith, so we think. But we're not paying attention, are we? We're not paying attention at all in America today. This hour of worship, a call across what so-called Protestant churches is filled with God-defying idolatry, sensuality, and face superstition. Unless God's wrath is often, God's wrath is often localized, but especially against idolatry. And so unless you are called to be among them, unless you have a mission, and God has made it expressly uh, plain that you are to go into Sodom and Gomorrah, then please avoid Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm not being too... I'm not being too strident to call Jerusalem here Sodom and Gomorrah. Paul says that in Galatians. The city has become defiled. The city, the holy city. And unless duty calls, when wrath descends, don't try to be brave. You flee. You get away from harm's, you get away from harm's uh, way. Because every effort must be made quickly to flee the wrath of a localized uh, localized wrath, expression of God's wrath in Jerusalem in that day and even today. The final point is this, that God will save his elect. God will certainly save his elect. He will not forget his sheep. The shepherd will not forget his own. He will leave the 99. He will, he will run after the, the, the one that is in trouble and bring her back, bring him or her back. 
God will save his elect even though we have the greatest tribulation in human history. God is a savior. He brings on the destruction. He brings on the salvation. The destruction of Jerusalem then is the greatest tribulation in the history of the world. Many historians have uh, dealt with this. Jesus is never hyperbolic. He says that this is since the beginning of time, even to the end of the age, the concentration, the sheer, the sheer concentration and the, 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 um, the completeness of the destruction and the quickness of it and the loss of all life, men, women, children, children, by the way, are, are in the covenant. And if you're not fulfilling the terms of the covenant and helping them by teaching them the scriptures and bringing them to church, my friends, they are in the covenant and they suffer. When you suffer, they will suffer. The sins of the father visited upon the, the, the sons to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. And here we have it. The disciples then must believe this, this teaching of Jesus. They must keep it for themselves and their families. They must teach it to the church after they're commissioning his apostles. The apostles must teach it to all nations because this is part of the counsel of God. People must be prepared for the wrath of God. Nobody should be banking on, well, at least I know I've figured this out, it's a mid-tribulation rapture and I'm out of here and there's no trouble. Fools and fools. God will shorten that period of the tribulation for the Jews unless it resolved in the utter end of all of God's old people. See, God, even, even in wrath, he remembers mercy. He has never displayed all of his wrath except at one occasion. And you know that occasion on the, on the cross. The Lord Father displayed uh, his abundant and full wrath on Jesus, his son, who bore by imputation, not physically, by imputation, he bore the sins of his people. And there the Lord let down the stroke, far worse stroke than the stroke to Jerusalem. But that stroke, having been the debt, uh, the, 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 the penalty due for the debt of sin, once paid by our surety, Christ, and need not never be paid. And so by his stripes you're healed. And by his suffering and by his sacrifice you are free. You are forgiven. You believe in the Lord Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in his own blood on the cross. What you're saying is the wrath that was due me fell upon him. It will not fall on me, at least not, uh, not that spiritual and eternal everlasting contempt uh, that God has to condemn sinners in hell. No, we are spared. We are utterly saved. We are utterly saved. And God here will shorten that period of tribulation. Maybe that's why he's asking us to pray or call out to him. God is sovereign. He can do as he pleases. He's in charge of all things. And God certainly does. To the last day of human history, God will remember mercy and judgment. You may cry out to him no matter how many times you have messed up no matter how many times you think you are guilty, not of only of hell, but of ten hells, a hundred hells, you cry out to him. You acknowledge. You acknowledge your sin as Elder Edwards prayed. And you admit it. Because he knows your heart. And we all of Adam's stock 
sin and break every commandment every day. And if you don't know that, you haven't understood the moral law. You need to be exercised in the moral law. Place to place to learn that is Sunday evening here. We're, we're preaching through the Ten Commandments. We'll help you through that. God still remembers mercy. A remnant of the Jewish people will be spared. And this is this is God's choice. He's being merciful. He still has people coming out of the line of Abraham, but of course it's not a blood. I, I really don't like this notion that it's that the Jewish people are kind of a race. You know how many people made up? Yeah, I mean, Abraham himself uh, was was a, was Syrian. Many of the people that composed the Jews were were converts from all all manner of, of nations. There were Moabites in there even. Uh, they, there were certainly Egyptians. We're not talking about a blood DNA type, my friends. We're talking about a constituted covenant people when we say Israel. Okay, and the remnant of those people will be spared for the sake of God's elect. And this is a, a witness. A standing witness in history of the testimony of God's truth. This truth, the Bible's truth, and the church is a pillar in the ground of this truth. And it will witness until the end of this age, until Christ returns, of the truthfulness that God is God and his word can be relied on, both for blessing, but you can mark it on your Google calendar. He will exact the justice and the debt of sin. You can just mark the day in red because he will visit. He will account you blessed for the blood of, and the righteousness of Christ and he will count you accursed for your own debt of sin and your own blood. God is God. But he will save those who he justifies and justly so calls them righteous, despite their sin, despite every failing, because they have seen the righteousness of God in Christ. When you come to him, you come to him as a strong tower. Here is your fortress. Here is your strong hill. Here is your line of defense. But it is not seen by eyes. It is spiritually discerned. And so you to flee to Christ wherever you are. And the beautiful thing is now that Christ is ascended at the right hand of God, Christ is everywhere. And you can flee to him by believing in him and trusting his promises and resting in him. That's how you flee to your strong tower. Remember all that he is and all that he's done on your part. And you are totally safe. You are not safe by going back to Jerusalem in any way. In any way. The legalizing, I mean the uh, Judaizing of the Christian religion has been going on uh, since, uh, it appears to be since about the 5th century. More and more elements, altars, sacrifices, incense, candles, looking more and more like Jerusalem. Hey, it's not the way to go. It's just not the way to go. Now, the remnant will be saved according to God's patience and forbearance. He's not willing that any should perish, but all of his elect seed will come to repentance. Now believe in Christ as your Savior, even though the number of believers is small, even though the hardships may, may exceed what you think is even your, uh, your physical or mental capacity, your emotional capacity. God will see you through. God is sufficient to see you 
saved. Now and forever. He saved his apostles through this. They preached the gospel. Except one, one was a devil. He saved his apostles. He saved his church. He will continue to save his people eternally. Ministers and elders. We, we must prepare the church for all manner of tribulation in the world. In the book of Isaiah, I, I'm going to ask... I'm going to ask the, the session once we get out of the book of Exodus. I'd like to think about preaching through the book of Isaiah. Oh, don't faint. I know it's a long book. But the tribulation and the hardship that will come upon this world and upon the church in North America, unless it repents, will be longer than the book of Isaiah. I'm hoping to maybe ask the, the session to permission to preach that book. We need to take a good long look because Isaiah says that Jehovah strengthens. Isaiah was in a very difficult place, a nation full of idolatry. And he found strength because he saw the Lord for who he was and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Ministers, we're not here to coddle our people. We're, 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 we can be nice. We, can, we, we, must, we must be nicer. But we have to stay within our commission and build up soldiers for Christ, fully armed, dangerous to hell, and meek and loving to one another. We don't fight flesh and blood. We fight principalities that far, far out maneuver us in intelligence and experience. But that in Christ we have every resource because he leads this church and he leads it with integrity just as he did his church in the wilderness. Let me conclude the preaching. Christ's prophecy concerning God's wrathful destruction of Jerusalem contains specific directions for the safety of his disciples and for the elect remnant of the Jews. I just uh, already made mention of this. Beware of Judaizing influences in the church. All these are features uh, of an old dispensation. They are not appropriate for the simple running of the gospel, which is heralded, believed upon in the world, witnessed by angels. To do so is returning to the burning city of Jerusalem. Cultivate faith every day. Trust God for what you think is impossible. You don't know a way out of a situation? Thank God for that trial. Here's an opportunity for you to trust the Lord. To go by sight? No, by unseen. Trusting the Lord in His ways, which are spiritual. Not relying on things that we see. We're tempted here to look at our budget and say, oh, this church is in trouble, man. Attendance, oh, wow, very discouraging. We looked at the Lord. We looked at the Lord. And that is the exercise. He is our keeper. He is our rock. He is our fortress. And since God is our fortress, let no one can be content with any emblem of a lesser thing. Even holy things, such as the temple, are no security, are no fortress. God alone.
is our fortress. May you believe that to the saving health of your soul and to the rejoicing of the day when you see his triumph. For he will triumph and you will triumph in him on the day of his appearing. Let's pray. Now, Lord, make your known, make uh, your word known, and Lord, stamp your seal upon your very teaching. Build up your church, and let us be sure that we are safe within the towers of Christ and despise the bulwarks of any other. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's have an offering, please.